The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. All right, we are in Numbers 31. We're going to do 11 verses out of it today. It's entitled, Take Vengeance on the Midianites. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm some of yourselves for war, and let them go against the Midianites to take vengeance for the Lord on Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to the war. So there were recruited from the divisions of Israel, one thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. Then Moses sent them to the war. 1,000 from each tribe. He sent them to the war with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the holy articles and the signal trumpets in his hand. And they warred against the Midianites, just as the Lord commanded Moses, and they killed all the males. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. And the children of Israel took the women of Midian captive with their little ones and took as spoil all their cattle, all their flocks, and all their goods. They also burned with fire all the cities where they dwelt and all their forts. And they took all the spoil and all the booty of man and beast. What is it that breaks our hearts? And why does it happen? I would suggest to you that the main driver of our sadness comes from one thing, familiarity. I know people that love to hunt. They will shoot bears, wild cats, wolves, whatever. They never blink an eye when shooting, and what they shoot becomes a trophy to them. And yet, I have seen them weep over the death of a family pet, literally mourning over it. And I could go so far as to say that if one of my friends who has many such trophies lost them in a fire, he would mourn over the loss. He did not bat an eye when shooting the animals, and yet he would feel loss over the same stuffed animals. We don't care diddly about mice. Get out the rat trap and get rid of them. And yet, we may have a little mouse cage for our children. And when the mouse dies, we will feel bad for it. Take this to anything that we have around us. Who cares about a mug? You can buy 10,000 mugs in 10,000 different stores or any store in town. 
If we go to buy one and drop it in the aisle and it breaks, it means nothing to us. But we may have a mug that we especially love and have used for years. And when we drop it, we will be especially upset over it. And though it sounds cold, when a catastrophe happens, I'd like you to think of the 250,000 Indonesians that were wiped out by the tsunami a couple years ago. And we hear of deaths like that. It is separate and it is dispassionate for the most part. We don't just break down and mourn over those people. Did anybody weep over them? I mean, openly weep, tears streaming down your face. There's no personal connection to them. But if we lost our best friend, our father, our brother, or whatever, the loss is personal because there is familiarity. What would happen if we had a brother we never knew? If we read in the paper that Joe Schmo died and he was our real brother and we didn't know it, we would go on to the next obituary actually without a care. It is familiarity that brings about closeness and also a sense of loss. My car, I've had that since I was 16 years old and the tears flow. Our text verse comes from Psalm 137, it's verses 8 and 9. O daughter of Babylon who are to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. That may be the most disturbing and depressing text verse that we will ever encounter. How could someone be happy about such a thing? It is a hard verse for us to think about, but it is a part of God's word. The commentaries on that verse go to every possible extreme that one can think of. But the verse is no less striking than what will come up in some of the verses which are found in Numbers 31. We won't go through them today, but we will go through them. What is the difference to God of a man killed in battle or a child that dies in an avalanche? The answer is not one is a child and the other is a man, nor is it one is innocent and one is not. The same man who died in battle was once a child. The life of that person from beginning to end is known to God. Is the size of the person what brings value? Does age or the lack of it bring inherent value? Does God know one person more or less than another? No, no, and no. We must remember this and then consider all things from God's perspective. Acute Chihuahua, and I'm speaking from first-hand knowledge here because I have eight of them. Acute Chihuahua has no more value as an animal than a horse or a lizard. We assign value to things arbitrarily without considering what God has done. Is he less satisfied with a spider than he is with an elephant? Both are magnificent in what they represent, the wisdom of God and the intricacy of his handiwork. We should never, and I've said this to people over the past week, we should never let our emotions drive our theology. Rather, we should let our theology drive our emotions. In other words, my theology says that Jesus Christ died for me, and everything I should do from that point on is to have my emotions in line with that precept. He died for me, and therefore I will do everything I can for the cause of Jesus Christ. I'll say it again. We should never let our emotions drive our theology. Rather, we should let our theology drive our emotions. When we do this, we will see the world from its proper perspective. When we allow our emotions to drive our theology, our theology will always, not sometimes, it will always be wrong. Always. 
And please never impute wrongdoing to God. That is dangerous waters. Such things as these are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again and may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got two thoughts for you today. The first is take vengeance. It's verses one through four. Verse one, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, the account now resumes the narrative which ended six chapters ago. In Numbers 25, the people of Israel are said to have committed harlotry with the women of Moab. These women invited them to the sacrifices of their gods, and those of Israel are said to have eaten with them and bowed down to their gods. From this came the saddening and terrible words, Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. In that account, the hero Phinehas arose and turned back the wrath of the Lord from the children of Israel. As that chapter closed out, the final verses said this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and attack them, for they harassed you with their schemes, by which they seduced you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of a leader of Midian, their sister, who was killed in the day of the plague because of Peor. From there, the book is dealt with, one, the second census of Israel, that was chapter 26. Two, inheritance laws brought before the Lord because of the daughters of Zelophehad, and then the ordaining of Joshua as Israel's next leader, that was chapter 27. And then three, the daily, weekly, monthly, and festal offerings of Israel, that was chapters 28 and 29. And then that astonishing set of verses last week, the laws concerning vows. That was chapter 30. Each of those matters was rightly placed into the ongoing narrative at that point because each of them deals with matters which would be needed for the people to know prior to entrance into Canaan. As Moses is the lawgiver and the one to ordain his replacement, their placement at that point was necessary before the Lord was to speak out his words initiated here by verse 1 and which leads directly into the thought of verse 2. Verse 2 says, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel. Avenging vengeance, sons Israel, on the Midianites. As was spoken at the end of chapter 25, so the act of vengeance is now required. This explains the words of chapter 25. There, the Hebrew basically said, treat them as enemies because they treated you as enemies. They were instructed to attack them. And that attack is as vengeance for what they did. Their schemes brought about the disgraceful conduct of Israel, and it brought about the death of 24,000 of Israel. Now, they were to be repaid with destruction. It is questioned why Moab was not included in the destruction which has been pronounced. This is especially so because it was their women who had been the ones to seduce Israel. And it was their gods whom Israel bowed down to. What has been and continues to be apparent is that Midian ruled over Moab to some extent, and it is they who are behind the actual planning of the seduction of Israel. This, however, doesn't give a full and satisfactory answer for why Moab wasn't also destroyed. The answer will be seen more completely in a few verses, but there are purposes beyond the moment for sparing Moab. The Lord is the one who has established the nations and he is the one who allows them to continue or to end according to his plans and purposes. There is a need for Moab to continue as a people. 
to destroy them now would change all of redemptive history. Moab will interact with Israel throughout the generations ahead. And those interactions would be in accord with what the Lord has laid out to include the movement of a family of Judah to the land of Moab during a time of famine. In that move, one of them would marry a woman of Moab named Ruth. He would die, but Ruth would return to Israel with her mother-in-law and become the wife of a man of Bethlehem named Boaz. From that union would descend David, and from David would come the Messiah, Jesus. If Moab were exterminated now, this would not occur. But it takes us back to the faith of the two daughters of Lot, many centuries earlier, who had anticipated the coming of Messiah and did what was otherwise considered unthinkable. But the story of Lot and his daughters led to the very events which are now unfolding before Israel, and to the reason why Moab, despite being a part of the turning of Israel from the Lord at Peor, is spared from destruction. As far as the timing of the Lord's words to Moses right now, whether they are spoken within days after those which ended Numbers 25, or whether they were weeks later, the time between the two is not long. In Numbers chapter 20, Aaron died on Mount Hor. This was on the first day of the fifth month of the 40th year. The people then mourned for him for 30 days before moving on. That takes them to the sixth month of the 40th year. Moses' death occurred before the first date noted in the book of Joshua when the people crossed the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month of the 41st year. The people also mourned for him for 30 days, as is recorded in Deuteronomy 34, verse 8. And before that, this is recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded him as commandments to them. After he had killed Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who dwelt at Ashtaroth in Edri. That accounts for all of the specifically recorded dates from the death of Aaron to the crossing of the Jordan. And it means that everything which has occurred since the death of Aaron and the coming death of Moses, including the speaking out of the entire book of Deuteronomy, had to have occurred within less than five months. That includes Israel's travels around Edom, their battles with Sihon and Og, which we've already seen, their settling into the area where they are now across from Jericho, and Balak's request for Balaam to come and curse them. That alone would have taken weeks because he had been summoned twice before coming. Therefore, it is not inconceivable that the account of Numbers chapter 25 with the harlotry of Israel and the order now to destroy Midian occurred almost immediately after the census of chapter 26, just a very short time after the people's transgression. However, you will see below that it was certainly at least seven days after the incident of Peor. When we get there, we will give a defense as to why this must be so. With the battle's successful completion, however, there will come a great change in the course of events in the narrative, both for Moses and for the people of Israel. Verse 2 going on. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. The idea of being gathered to one's people does not mean burial itself. Moses is going to be buried in a location that nobody would be aware of. It means to die, but it also means that there is a state of consciousness in death for those redeemed by the Lord. This is certain based on what it says concerning Samuel after his own death. 
when he was brought up by the witch of Endor in 1 Samuel 28, he questioned as to why Saul had disturbed him. He further had an awareness of the ongoing events and even of what would occur. It would not be right to establish a complete doctrine over such an account, but Jesus noted the fact that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Whatever the state of those who have been gathered to their people, it is certain that there is potentially some type of awareness among them, even if it is in a state of restful sleep. As for the timing and the reason for the Lord's words to Moses, now, this is previously explained to him just prior to the account concerning the inauguration of Joshua. We read in Numbers 27 these words, Now the Lord said to Moses, Go up into this Mount Abarim and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you have seen it, you shall be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother was gathered. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hollow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Moses and his brother Aaron were judged for their having rebelled against the command of the Lord. They failed to hallow him before the children of Israel, and they were sentenced to die outside of their promised inheritance. However, we have seen that this was necessary to maintain the typology of the dispensations of law and of grace, and how they relate to the work of Jesus Christ. The law, meaning the Mosaic Covenant, represented by Moses and Aaron, cannot bring anyone into the true inheritance and the presence of God. Only Christ, who fulfilled the law and thus embodies the law, and who is the one to establish a new covenant, can do so. God used their rebellion as justification to keep them from the inheritance, but they would not have entered even if they had not rebelled. The typology is set, and it must be maintained. Each story has been carefully placed into the chronology of events to show us exemplary truths of how God is working in Jesus Christ to reconcile the world to himself. Verse 3, so Moses spoke to the people saying, arm some of yourselves for war. Moses was just instructed after the battle he would be gathered to his fathers. There is still no record here or in Deuteronomy that Moses then said, well then, we need to whip the men into shape and get them ready for what lies ahead. Let's plan this for August a year from now. Rather, without delay and in obedience to the command, despite what that means for him after it is duly fulfilled, he goes to the people and tells them what to do. Prepare men for war. It's like a death sentence. When I send these people out to war, I'm going to die very soon afterwards. An interesting word is used here. It's chalatz. It means to draw off. If one were to tear stones from a wall, they would be drawn off from their normal purpose. One can draw off his sandal as well. Here, that word is used when speaking of having men drawn off for war. They are being detached from their regular purpose within the community, and they are being assigned to battle duties. Instead of saying, arm some of yourselves for war, it would more understandably say, draw some of yourselves out for war. Verse 3 continues, and let them go against the Midianites to take vengeance for the Lord on Midian. Latet nikmat Yehovah be Midian. Give vengeance, Yehovah, in Midian. In verse 2, the Lord spoke of imposing the vengeance of the children of Israel on the Midianites. Here, Moses speaks of giving the vengeance of Yehovah in Midian. An act against Israel is an act against the Lord. 
When Israel was seduced, the dignity and honor of the Lord was violated. Therefore, the vengeance of Israel is the Lord's vengeance. The state of Israel is the Lord's interest. There is no disconnect between the two unless it is one that is brought about by Israel. This is why the Lord could send a plague against Israel and yet could, at the same time, determine to destroy those who precipitated the need for the plague in the first place. The plague was a religious war against the disobedient within the community, and yet the calling of Israel to battle is a religious war against those who had caused the violation to occur. As I say from time to time, Israel means he strives with God. Israel either strives with God against God, or he strives with God for God. But either way, Israel strives with God. Both are happening in this one narrative right now. They strove against God at Peor. They're striving with God to destroy the people that introduced them to Peor. In this coming battle, there will obviously be people on the side of Midian who probably weren't even aware of what the leaders had done to invite the coming destruction. This is true with those enlisted for service in any situation. People were pulled out of the woods of Tennessee, such as Sergeant York, and from the fields of Kansas in World War II, and other than whatever they were told concerning the enemy, they may not have had a clue as to what their role was or why they were possibly to go to war and die. The same is true with those in Japan or Germany. Some bore no part in what the leaders began and what the populace approved of, but they became guilty of the offense because of the nationality they bore and the language they spoke. The nations have been ordained by God, and the people born into them are a part of them for good or for ill. The sin of a nation transfers to the people of the nation, regardless as to their own personal guilt. Likewise, the responsibility to live in, participate in, defend, and possibly die for one's nation is what God has ordained. Unless it is against the will of God to render unto Caesar what belongs to him, then the people of a nation are obligated to, in fact, render unto Caesar. For Israel, the call is made to defend the honor of the Lord. Verse 4, a thousand from each tribe, elef lamate, elef lamate, a thousand for a staff, a thousand for a staff. The tribe is represented by the staff of its leader. Each tribe is to draw 1,000 from its number. Verse 4 continues, of all the tribes of Israel, you shall send to the war. Levi is a tribe, but it is not a tribe of war. There are 12 tribes reckoned as designated for war. Levi is not, but Joseph, as you remember, is reckoned between Manasseh and Ephraim. Thus, a thousand from each tribe is a force of 12,000 to be drawn away from the total and prepared for battle. That is next explicitly stated after a short poem. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay as I see fit. I will put forth my destroying sword, and those whom I cut will go down to the pit. Israel's my vengeance-taking sword, and with them I shall destroy those set for the pit. In this is nothing unreasonable or untoward. I am the Lord, and I will repay as I see fit. For those who fail to come to me through my son Christ the Lord, there lies ahead a time of great calamity. I have offered grace and they have rejected my word. Come to the fount now while the blessing is at hand, before the time comes when I sweep clean the land. Our second thought today is vengeance taken. It's verses 5 through 11. 
Verse 5, so there were recruited from the divisions of Israel. And were set apart from the thousands of Israel. It is a new word, Masar, which will only be seen here and in verse 16 in the whole Bible. It comes from a primitive root meaning to sunder, thus it means to set apart. Interestingly here, it will be the setting apart of the people from the others and to the Lord for battle. Whereas in verse 16, it will refer to the people of Israel who trespassed against the Lord. In this, they were set apart from the Lord in apostasy. The only two uses of the word found in all of the Bible show a curious and a sad contrast between obediently following the Lord and disobediently turning away from him. The results of the two are highlighted in scripture. One has been seen, the other will be seen before the end of the chapter. As a side note to this special word, the Nimwits, and I use that term appropriately, the Nimwits at Cambridge say that it must be an incorrect reading. Otherwise, it is a later composition because the word is only found much later in post-biblical Hebrew. But as the word is used again in verse 16, they say that word must also be an incorrect reading. The stupidity of that is first seen in the contrasting of the two uses of the word, which obviously is intentional. The Lord is making a theological point concerning separation to him or from him based on the word in the context in which it is presented. This would be entirely lost unless the two different uses which Cambridge appeals to were used. And secondly, the use of an ancient word at later times in history is not an unknown event. When someone needs a word to fit a situation and they find one in an old text or a book that suits, that word is brought forward into modern usage. This short diversion into the foibles of the Cambridge Commentary has been brought to you as a public service warning. Please do not simply accept what you read or what you hear because it comes from a seemingly legitimate source. That is a very bad place to be when you say that pastor knows what he's talking about and he has no idea what he's talking about. He takes something out of context and he says something which is not intended and you believe him because he's your pastor? That is a real problem. Everything must be maintained in the context in which it is presented. And when you read Cambridge, always read it with a grain of salt. I, a couple times in all of our sermons, I have said they did a great job on this. There have been very few. They're very liberal and they love to tear the Bible apart, but they do have insight. So you can read the bad as well as the good and reject the bad and hold to the good. Verse 5 continues, 1,000 from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. If Levi was reckoned for war, there would be 13,000 mustered. But that issue was settled long before in the narrative. The word sabah, or war, was used numerous times in the early chapters of Numbers concerning the tribes, other than Levi, who would be counted for war. The warfare of Levi was defensive only. They were responsible for the service and defense of the sanctuary, even in regards to the people from other tribes of Israel. Levi was the line of defense for this purpose, but not as a force to go forth to engage in battle. The word savah was again used in Numbers 26 verse 2 during the second census when counting the men to be considered ready for war. However, Levi was, again, not counted among Israel for that purpose. Now, the first calling of the people for war is made, and 12,000 are selected. Levi is not considered in this mustering of men. Verse 6, then Moses sent them to the war, 1,000 from each tribe. 
The number here, 12,000 men, is obviously a rather small force in comparison to the force they will face. The number of virgins who will be taken as plunder is 32,000. The number of non-virgins would take the total up much, much higher. Thus, the total number of men in Midian would have been a sizable force. But the small number of men set apart now with the guarantee of success was to embolden the people before their entry into Canaan. They were to see that it is the Lord who ultimately fights and wins the battle for them when they are aligned with him in obedience. When this is so, great things will occur. This will be evident based on the details seen later in verses 48 through 50. However, this is now given to contrast what will be seen on the other side of the Jordan when Israel chooses a group of men to face a small and insignificant city, but it is after a time when they have been disobedient to the Lord. In this, they will be beaten down by their enemy. Jonathan, son of King Saul, understood this precept when he decided to single-handedly engage a larger force in battle in 1 Samuel 14, verse 6. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. It is the Lord who wins the battles or who stands against his people in their own attempts to do so. Verse 6 continues, He sent them to the war with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the holy articles and the signal trumpets in his hand. Curiously, the name of the leader of the battle is not given. One would assume it was Joshua, but that is left unstated. The point is that the Lord is their head regardless of a human leader. However, Phineas is sent to carry out the priestly function of ministering for the people and before the Lord in regard to the holy articles. This term, ukele hakodesh, or and articles the holy, leaves a bit of a problem to be resolved. If the ark went, it would have said so. The ark is never referred to except as a proper name. The ark, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the ark of the testimony, and so on. It also cannot be speaking of the Urim and Thummim which were kept in the breastplate of the high priest. As he is not going to battle, that leaves them out. But even if they were taken, there would be no need for them. The matter is decided, and those things were used for deciding matters. There are no other articles which would qualify as holy articles, which would be necessary for Phineas to take for the purpose of the war. However, the way the Hebrew is structured, it is argued that the words say, and the holy articles to wit, the signal trumpets. In other words, it isn't saying that there are holy articles and signal trumpets, but that the signal trumpets are the holy articles. These are, in fact, holy articles, and they were used for holy purposes. The same use of the Hebrew where the word and is used in this way is found elsewhere, and so this is certainly what is being said. These chasotzerot, or trumpets, were described in Numbers chapter 10, there are two silver trumpets which were to be used at various times when the congregation moved or when the assembly was to be gathered together, and during feasts and over offerings as a memorial before the Lord. But they were also specifically given to be sounded before war. There it said in Numbers chapter 10, when you go out to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. Outside of that passage, 
where they are described, this is the only time that they are mentioned in the books of Moses. They will not be mentioned again until the time of the kings. The name Phinehas or Phineas means mouth of brass and thus mouth of judgment because brass signifies judgment. Eliezer means whom God helps. As the trumpets are to be blown by Phineas, his name finds a literal fulfillment in what occurs. Mouth of judgment blows for the call to judgment by the Lord, and it is against Midian or place of judgment. The picture of the impending defeat of God's enemies is clearly seen in the names given in this narrative. As I said in verse 2, in which I promise to explain a little bit later, the time has now come. The battle now ready to be conducted is at least seven days after the plague which came upon the camp because of the matter of Peor. Everybody look up here. Don't look at your notes. Why must it be seven days after the matter of Peor? Don't look at your notes. Why must it be seven days after the matter of Peor? You get a Maserati if you can figure this out. Jim is very close. I'm going to have to go on, though, because people are listening. The reason is because of what it says. And as for you, remain outside the camp seven days. Whoever has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. The law of the water of cleansing described in Numbers 19 extended to purification of anyone who had killed any person. Phineas had killed two people, Zimri and Cosby. Thus, he would have been unclean until he had been purified on the seventh day. He could not take the holy objects in his hand until he was purified from defilement. Only after that could he go forth in this manner. Verse 7. Does everybody get that? There was the Phineas's bravery. He was unclean. He could not have picked up those holy signal trumpets. So at least seven more days of that intricate timeline that I gave you before. And the reason why I gave you that intricate timeline is because I love that kind of stuff. I spent probably 20 or 30 minutes pulling out every single day and figuring out exactly how much time Moses had left to do Deuteronomy and then go up on Mount Nebo, see the land of promise from afar and then to die, and then the people go across the Jordan. That's why you got all that information. Verse 7, and they warred against the Midianites just as the Lord commanded Moses. The note here is a confirmation of what has already been stated. The war is a holy war, and it is directed by the Lord through Moses. This cannot be equated with any other supposed holy war in all of human history, because there is one God. If the Lord is God, then his word is set and it is to be obeyed. But this also means that any claims to a holy war, apart from what Israel conducted, cannot be considered a valid claim. First, this is because there is no other God who directs the nations. Secondly, because no other group or nation has been given explicit instruction to wage war by the Lord, although some have claimed it is so, such as in 2 Kings 18.25. Have I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Sennacherib claimed that the Lord had sent him, but his words were proven false when the angel of the Lord went out and killed 185,000 Assyrians in a single night, thus effectively defeating the army and causing the king to depart and return to Nineveh. The Lord allowed other nations to come and to defeat Israel, but these were not their holy wars. 
Rather, this was the Lord's discipline upon his holy people. Therefore, no guilt can be imputed to Israel in their obedience to the Lord's commands. That's very important to remember. Verse 7 continues, and they killed all the males. Of this, again, the Nimwits at Cambridge state that it is an imaginative description of success. If it were historically true, Midian would have disappeared from history, but they are found not long afterwards at one of Israel's most troublesome neighbors. Thus, they call into question the truth and accuracy of God's word without simply thinking the matter through. Israel fought Midian. It never says that they fought all of Midian. Many people fought and defeated Israel, but none fought and defeated all of Israel. The Midianites that Israel fought in this battle were defeated and all of the males were killed. Imagine standing before the Lord on the day of judgment when you spent your lifetime belittling God's word. If they are saved, there will be a lot of burning up of their insufficient works. If they are not, there will be lots of additional punishment to go with their trip into the fiery pit. I do not in any way think that Cambridge has a good standing before the Lord when they get there. I, I am trembling sometimes when I read their commentaries, thinking about what they have to face. As far as what it says about all the males, the reason for this clause being stated is because of what will be said by Moses concerning the women in verses 16 and 17. It was the women who actively participated in the seduction of Israel, and therefore to kill only the males is to complete only half of the necessary task. It was not at Israel's discretion who should be slain and who should be saved. The order for annihilation was given, and all should have been annihilated, all of them, without mercy. However, they failed to consider this, and thus they failed to act. When God determines that sinners will be destroyed, it will come about. His kingdom is one which will exclude all who have sinned. And guess what? All have sinned. And only those in Christ have been forgiven of their sins and no longer have sin imputed to them then only those in Christ will enter into his kingdom. God's judgment is without regard to sex or age. All who are not of Christ will find their end apart from God. The sparing of the virgin females later in this chapter is a concession, and it makes a theological point, which I think you will find interesting, but it is not a set precept. When Israel enters Canaan, all with the breath of life, even the virgin females, will be devoted to destruction. Verse 8, they killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed. Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hor, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. What the Hebrew seems to be saying is that these kings were killed after the battle, in addition to those slain during the battle. These five are only mentioned here and in Joshua 13, verse 21 and 22. All these cities of the plain and all of the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses had struck with the princes of Midian, Evi, Rechem, Zor, Hor, and Reba, who were the princes of Sihon dwelling in the country. The children of Israel also killed with the sword Balaam, the son of Beor, the soothsayer, among those who were killed by them. There in Joshua, they are called princes of Sihon. Thus, we can see a hierarchy which existed until the death of Sihon. He was obviously a ruler over a large area, including Midian, and these five were apparently set over their people and over Moab. Their names, as best can be determined, mean Evi, desirous, Rechem, many-colored, Sur means rock, Chur means white, Riva, fourth. 
Sur was the father of Cosby, the woman who was impaled by Phineas in Numbers chapter 25. His end did not come much later. It's hard to determine why the special detail is given to these five kings, including their names, unless there is some future battle which will apparently be a typological match to what occurred in Numbers. There is not much to go on, and the speculation could go on and on. Suffice it to say that Israel was completely victorious overall, including the five kings of Midian. Verse 8 continues, Balaam the son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. From this, it is obvious that Balaam either went back to his home country and then returned, possibly at the request of these kings, or he got on his donkey to go home and then decided to swing by Midian's camp and try another tact in hopes of destroying Israel. One way or another, he wound up with these five kings and was successful in influencing them that, though a curse against Israel would not be effective, tempting them through seduction would be. In this, and as these five kings were not only over Midian, but also over Moab, they then took Balaam's doctrine, passed it on to Balak, and thus Moab drew Israel into the incident at Peor. This is without a doubt, because in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says this, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. That's Revelation 2 verse 14. Despite not being mentioned here, Balak returned to the picture through the counsel of Balaam, and for his wicked conduct, Balaam was killed with the sword. In his first oracle over Israel, he proclaimed these words, Let me die the death of the righteous. Such was not to be. He died the death of the wicked, and he is remembered as such throughout the rest of sacred history. Verse 9, And the children of Israel took the women of Midian captive with their little ones, and took as spoil all their cattle, all their flocks, and all their goods. It was already said that all the men were killed. Here, to set up what will follow in the verses ahead, he notes the various categories of those who were not killed, and that which was not destroyed. The men of war were all destroyed, as were the kings over them. However, the women, virgins and otherwise, were spared and taken captive. Along with them, the Israelites took as plunder all the tough, or little ones. The word comes from tafaf, meaning to take small, quick steps. This means these are just small children. Further, all forms of livestock, meaning both large, dumb animals and herding animals, were taken as plunder. And finally, it says, or all wealth was plundered. Everything of any value at all was gathered up and taken as spoils of war for Israel. Verse 10, they also burned with fire all the cities where they dwelt and all their forts. Two things are mentioned here, the ir, or cities, and the tirah, or forts. The cities are commonly referred to dwellings of people. The tirah, or forts, is a much rarer word. It comes from a word meaning rows. And so it could be towers, it could be forts, it could be camps, battlements, or some other thing. People aren't really sure. This is stated here to show the remarkable desolation of the area after Israel was done. Midian, as a people, was not completely destroyed, but only this portion of them was completely destroyed. This would make others coming in and settling have to go through the laborious task of rebuilding from scratch. They could not just move in and immediately use the area for living or for waging wars. 
And finally, for today, it says this. Verse 11 finishes with, And they took all the spoil and all the booty of man and beast. Here again, two different things are noted. The shalal, or spoil, and a new word, malkoach, or booty. It comes from the word which begins the verse, actually. Lakach, took. It thus signifies the takings. It is an all-encompassing thought that anything of value was taken in the campaign. Midian was completely destroyed, and Israel's vengeance was complete, and thus the vengeance for the Lord, as directed in verse 3, was attained. Due to the length of the passage, which is 54 verses long, we have to stop here and pick up the narrative next week. Until then, continue to remind yourself about the precept that this is the Lord's war, and thus it is a holy war. We cannot speak against what God has ordained without falling into sin. Without having read the commentaries on the coming verses at this point, I can imagine that the liberal commentators will, in fact, find fault with Moses and what he is going to command in the verses ahead. But that shows their own inability to perceive God as he is. And it is a giant defect in their understanding of his sovereign right to dispose with all life as he determines. Let us not fall into such an error, but let us rather take the word of God as it is written, accepting the Lord's judgments as they are given. We are not God, and we cannot speak for him. And that goes with the very personal and solemn obligation of each person to receive his offer of peace, which is found in Jesus Christ, or to reject it and suffer the consequences of that choice. God is God, and we must be obedient to his will if we are going to be included in what that will has in store for the redeemed of the Lord. Now, I spoke at the beginning of this sermon about being familiar with things. We're familiar with that, and we're familiar with that, and we're familiar with that. And that brings about a sense of personalness to us. We could take that to anything. It doesn't matter what it is in this world. There's something over there that means absolutely nothing to us, and we have exactly the same thing in our house, and it's personal to us. And we, we treat it differently than we do other things. We do it with people. We do it with animals. We do it with every single thing that we can think of. Familiarity is what brings about a sense of love, a sense of ownership, a sense of whatever. How familiar are you with the Lord? How familiar are are you with the word of the Lord? I'm serious about that. We all have to look at ourselves and we have to say, what is of value to me? Because this word means absolutely nothing to most people because most people do not know this word. The more familiar you are with it, the more it means something to you. And the more you speak to the Lord, and I'm talking about all day, just drive down the road and talk to the Lord. And the more you listen to his word on the CD when you're driving, or what it, Vic told me this morning, he's listened to the Bible constantly now on his uh, iPad or whatever it's called. I don't know. And he, he's familiar with the word. He's becoming familiar with it. And I mean to embarrass you. This is my job. If you're not reading the word, if you're not familiar with the Lord, then he's not personal to you. I hate when people email me and they say, I need to get right with the Lord. My life is falling apart. Don't get me wrong, I like the fact that they want to get right with the Lord, but I wish they had done it first, because when their life starts falling apart, they are familiar with the Lord, and He is familiar with them. I don't mean that I hate it that they email me. I mean that the whole thing, my heart breaks when I hear that, 
They're so far away from the Lord. Somebody's dying in the hospital and they don't know what to do. And so they call somebody they know loves the Lord. What do I do? I just, it breaks my heart. How familiar are you with the Lord? And that starts with the very basic premise of Jesus Christ. Because there may be somebody that's watching right now that does not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we have to make sure that that is said, that without that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, calling on the Lord, as Paul says in Romans chapter 10, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved without Jesus Christ. It is impossible. I love the Lord, and I try to get familiar with him more and more every single day. And when people email me difficult questions from the Bible, I love it because it makes me more familiar with the Lord, and I know that they are pursuing the Lord because they want to get familiar with him. Please, everything in your life, let it revolve around Jesus Christ. Revolve around his word. When you eat, thank the Lord for the food. When you have something good happen, thank the Lord for it. I saw that beautiful cloud. It just, it touched my heart. It was radiating out a little rainbow. Thank you, Lord. You didn't have to put that in my line of sight today. Thank you. Everything you do, include the Lord in it, okay? Please do that. Our closing verse comes from Romans chapter 9. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of his mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Man, that's seen right in the take vengeance on the Midianites. He's going to do something next week, which is rather astonishing. People say the thing that, he, that Moses commanded is terrible. I say the thing that Moses commanded is gracious and merciful. Read the verses and we'll talk about it next week. The Lord has mercy on whom he will have mercy, the Bible says, and we have to accept his judgments. We cannot call into question the goodness of God. That is a bad place to be. Next week is Numbers 31, 12 through 24. This passage will make some lefties' blood boil. It's entitled, The Captives, the Booty, and the Spoil. That'll be our 60th, believe it or not, 60th number sermon. We went through 52 in Leviticus. We're already eight beyond that, and we've got a ways to go. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in a desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there. And he's carefully leading you to the land of promise. And I'm talking about saved believers here. If you are saved, he is doing this for you actively. So follow him and trust him. And he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Got a poem here for you and we'll be done. Take vengeance on the Midianites. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, these words to him he was then relaying. Take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. Remember when you did rebel? So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm some of yourselves for war, and let them go against the Midianites to take vengeance for the Lord on Midian. Remember what they did at Peor? A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to the war, as to you I now tell. So there were recruited from the divisions of Israel, not less or more, one thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand men armed for war. 
Then Moses sent them to the war, 1,000 from each tribe, so we understand. He sent them to the war with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the holy articles and the signal trumpets in his hand. And they warred against the Midianites, just as the Lord commanded Moses, as he did tell. And they killed all the males. For the Midianite males, things didn't go so well. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed as directed by the Lord. Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hor, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. And the children of Israel took the women of Midian captives, so they did do. But their little ones, and took as spoil all their cattle, all their flocks, and all their goods too. They also burned with fire all the cities where they dwelt, and all their forts as well. And they took all the spoil and all the booty of man and beast, so much spoil for Israel. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess. And so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, the verses today were rather tough, and next week they're going to be tougher. They challenge our sensibilities. They challenge our sense of what we think is right and moral or what is bad, and that has been reflected in many commentaries throughout the years. But the fact is, you are God, and you have chosen things according to your predestined plan, and we would hope that we would be pleasing to you in all ways, including accepting your word as written and understanding that you have set a hierarchy in this life of ours where you are on top and then you've given different hierarchies from there. Christ is our Lord, the male is the head of the family, and so on down the line. And when decisions are made, we should not question those decisions, but we should stand behind what is said And we should accept that you are Lord and you have determined these things for your purposes. So help us to do that because it is confusing. It's hard. We read things and they trouble us, but we know that what you do is right. And so help us to get over that disconnect and to understand clearly the things that you have proclaimed in your word so that you will be glorified and we will not challenge you in the things that you have spoken out. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.